Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are Team Red, White, and Blue, the Global Food Banking Network, United Through Reading. You can find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders at give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Today back with me is Toshi Hu, who is the director of the Emerging Media Lab at the Institute for the Future. And Toshi and I had a chance to attend the Microsoft Global Nonprofit Leaders Summit last week. And both of us found it pretty interesting and had some takeaways. And what I wanted to do, since Toshi is an Emerging Media Lab leader and focuses on the future, maybe the next five, 10 years and out, that we would kind of look at what we learned or discovered or even what was discussed at the summit and see how those things align with the work Toshi's doing and his sense of what we may be seeing in the future over the next five, 10 years and out. So Toshi, welcome back to the show. And I just wanted to make sure that all our listeners know that we had Toshi on a couple of weeks ago and he gave us quite a bit to chew on. And so I commend that interview to you all as well. Toshi, welcome back to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thanks, Art. It's great to be back. So let me just start by just asking you, what was your general takeaway from the days that we spent out in Bellevue, Washington at the summit? Well, first of all, I think it's important to share with listeners that it was a pretty incredible gathering in the sense of who was in the audience. This was, I believe, over 1,600 individuals in person, gathering in person, representing over 1,100 different social impact and nonprofits from around the world. And I think they said something like over 30 different countries were represented. So for me, a big part of the, going to this conference, while I was interested in learning from Microsoft, because um, they were our hosts there, around their seeing generative AI as being something that can help be a tool for doing good in the world. I was also very curious just to to meet more individuals working in these uh, wide range of incredible organizations. Um, so a lot of it for me was both learning about Microsoft's take on AI, but also really hearing from nonprofit leaders how they're thinking about AI, what are the questions that they have, what are the things that they're concerned about, what are the things that they're excited about. So it was incredibly valuable in that way, just the, you know, kind of the in-between session conversations that we were able to have that was so valuable when you go to these kind of in-person events. But I would say just from the more kind of official uh, function of the event, it was also really interesting. This was hosted up in Bellevue near uh, Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond. And this is the first inaugural gathering global leadership event for nonprofits. And really the day and a half of official programming that they shared with us was uh, about trying to both share what is generative AI, what are the ways that Microsoft is building tools, what are, how, and how might organizations use them. And then they also provided some examples of organizations that are already experimenting. And I think that for many of us, not just myself, but everybody there seeing, okay, we know that AI is a, 
a new thing. It's something that everyone's talking about. There's clearly some really incredible capabilities. There's some new things to learn about it, but what are people actually doing with this technology was kind of a big question on everybody's mind. So I took away a lot of some of the interesting examples of case studies that they had. Well, you do your work at the Emerging Media Lab, and I want to just ask if the work you're doing there, if you see any sort of direct connection, particularly as these things might link over the next five to 10 years or so. And by the way, to our audience, I want to keep this interview focused a little bit on thinking down the road a bit. I know we're all caught up in the frenzy right now of trying to understand the AI world and its capabilities. But it's also important, I think, to try to extend our purview a little bit out to kind of help make sense of some of what we're experiencing now. You know, we may not understand the details of everything that's going on right now, but I know you have ways, Toshi, of extrapolating what you're experiencing and trying to give us a sense of what some possible futures could could be like over the next and five years is a blink. You know, I'm saying five years like yeah. it's really the future. Five years is just a blink. But if we think 10 years out, what might that look like? And even five years, a lot is going to happen. As we've seen uh, already, a lot has happened in one or two years. But I wanted to make sure that our audience understood that that's kind of where our focus is going to be for this particular interview. So how do you link the Emerging Media Lab, Toshi, with what you've experienced there and and how you see the future? Well, first of all, Art, I want to share that when we say our focus in the lab, as we like to say, is looking at the future of human communication, collaboration, and human connection, all through the lens of emerging media technologies, and I would include generative AI in that, as well as emerging media mythologies, meaning what are the new stories, what's the new sense-making that we're we're able to do, what's the new collective intelligence and collective sense-making we're able to make with these new ways that we can communicate, collaborate, and connect so that's always you know, what I'm looking at and trying to consider what are the longer reaching implications of these technologies. And something we talked about in our last conversation is, that's interesting about generative AI right now is that in many ways we are discovering what generative AI can do rather than inventing it as a tool. Because by nature, it's an emergent technology, which happens to be kind of a, a theme in our work in the lab. And, and by emergence, we mean that it's not necessarily like designed by rules or by defined structure. Emergence happens when you create dynamic systems that have feedback loops and things emerge from those systems that aren't necessarily intended outcomes or consequences. And some of those can be quite wonderful and some of them can be quite concerning. When we look at generative AI right now, it's 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 I'll be really honest with you, it's quite difficult to apply some of the more standard foresight methodologies to trying to anticipate specifically what's going to happen. And part of why that is, is that generative AI, you know, this is not just like a new tire that someone's invented or some sort of new paint uh, where it might be useful to a certain type of organization or individual. One of the things that makes generative AI both so interesting but also so kind of challenging to do sense-making around it is that it it is a general-purpose technology. One of the jokes I often make in my talks is saying, like, generative AI is only going to affect your life or your work if you deal with only for people who use images, text, video, sound, or other forms of media. And, of course, that's every everybody, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And... Generative AI is going to have different implications for different fields because, as we discussed last week too, it's non-deterministic, meaning it doesn't behave the same every time, (laughs) which kind of defies how we think of technology just in general. If you type into a calculator 9 times 27, if you do that 100 times, you're going to get the same answer every time. If you put the same question into ChatGPT, a hundred times, you may get a hundred different answers. Mm. And so it is going to be an emergent phenomena. We're not quite sure how it's going to play out. 
Now, that said, I think there are some things that we can start to look at, both in terms of like what the technology can do and how people are currently applying it to begin to speculate on what are some of the implications, applications, and impacts more widely in the longer term. Part of my learning about generative AI, one of the things I think is really important, you know, even though many organizations and individuals experienced or maybe even use AI in our professional or, or personal lives, we actually all do. If you use the internet, you're using some form of AI. It hasn't necessarily been generative AI, but using a search engine. If you use a search engine, you've used a type of AI. If you use a Facebook or you know, social media or get recommendations on Netflix, you've used a certain type of AI. And those are more pattern recognition AIs. Generative AI is by definition, and why we call it generative AI, it actually generates new patterns and new data and new information. And we've been able to use that to generate these large language models. That's what the kind of core of this generative AI, that's what ChatGPT is. It's a language model. And they build it by pouring over a trillion words scraped from the internet into a giant computing system and they attach, uh, they, pr- they push it through the, some of the most powerful computers that the world has today and they apply some kind of se- special sauce. It's not actually not secret. It's publicly available. It's a, something called a transformer technology. And they kind of put it into this big cauldron and what they create is these large language models. And these language models are able to, uh, they're designed to do one thing and that is to predict what the next word in a sequence might be. And so when, you know, most people experience that through chat GPT, you say, you know, write me a nursery rhyme about going to the moon and spaghetti, and it's able to somehow generate a nursery rhyme about going to the moon and spaghetti. And it's surprisingly coherent. And then people even ask it questions like, what might be a good place to go out to dinner when I'm visiting uh, Morocco or something like this? Now, a lot of times it produces really good, useful answers. And we're even able to see it actually do some basic reasoning. Like, hey, here's something I'm trying to figure out. Here's some information. Could you help me like figure out what I'm missing here and maybe even develop a plan? And sometimes, and I want to emphasize sometimes, it's good at generating an answer. But it's important to understand that what it really is doing underneath the hood is it's designed to generate things that sound like good answers. And that's actually useful a lot of times when we're trying to figure out what might be the right answer. We get into trouble, though, and I'm a little worried how we're going to be dealing, getting through the next year to five years if we start to use this as information retrieval and trusting necessarily the answers because these systems do often make things up and they make it up in convincing ways. So when we talk about like the longer term, you know, not just what's happening today, but what's maybe happening in five, ten years, you know, the, the place that my mind starts to kind of go to when I speculate around that is that I think the things that we think generative AI are going to be useful for today and in this next year and what kind of may be being sold uh, like companies like Microsoft to organizations like at the summit we went to, I don't think that the things that we're selling it for today are what it's really going to be impactful for us in the long run in the, in the five to 10 year period. Part of that is we're going to learn that it's maybe not a reliable answer finder, and that's going to really change where we try to use it. And I don't think that that's 100% clear to everybody. And it certainly was not made clear at this conference to this gathering of nonprofit leaders that like that's something to know. Like You can't necessarily trust what it's going to say to be factual or even in alignment with your organization's ethics or goals. But when we start to say, okay, once if we are able to get through that kind of stumbling block and realize that maybe it's not exactly that kind of tool, I think that we're going to start to realize that this is an, not a reliable answer finder, but it's an unprecedented possibilities explorer. And I think the reality is, while I'm, I do think it's important to recognize it does make a lot of mistakes in the short term, uh, and you can't necessarily say uh, trust what it's saying, it does often give you really great insights. So I think what, another thing that we've been saying amongst researchers at Institute for the Future that have been looking more deeply into this is that the organizations that, number one, use it more as a possibility explorer, and number two, the organizations that do want to try to use it for kind of truth-seeking or answer-finding 
are going to need to develop really robust and innovative ways to for verification and validation of the information concepts, ideas, and plans that these generative AI tools spit out. And so I think that's going to lead us in the long term to kind of a new ecosystem. And in fact, we're already struggling, of course, even before generative AI of like, how do we figure out what's true and what's reliable and who to trust? This is a challenge that the world has already been facing. And in fact, it's a question that humanity has been facing, I would argue, since the the dawn of civilization is like, how do you know what to trust and what, you know, how do we verify things? So in some ways, there's a lot of new problems that we're having to solve. In other ways, this is a long running question that humanity has had to grapple with, uh, with all forms of media, which can both be used to like share valid information, but also can be misleading and used to actually mislead and distort the truth. So I think the longer term view, when we start to look five, maybe 10 years out, the other thing to understand too, is that right now where there's a lot of fascination around chatbots and generative AI, but really these are kind of one facet of kind of a broader set of technologies, computing technologies specifically, that are going to be kind of coming together. So the other kind of exciting thing that's happened recently, and I just shared this with you, Art, that we're starting to see kind of the next generation of immersive spatial computing systems. Apple's new Apple Vision Pro headset is coming up. And I bring that up now because you're asking about longer-term forecasts. And I think, again, it's not just one technology. It's a lot of converging technologies here. So if I may, like kind of suggest that as we start to see um, the future, not just thinking about what kind of chatbots are we going to have. Everyone's going to build a chatbot in the next six months. People are going to get sick of chatbots, right? That's not necessarily what, what what's the long-term view. I think the things when we see in the longer term would be more conversational interfaces to technology. That's going to be quite common. You're no longer going to have to speak in the language of technology for our technology to understand us. Uh, technology is going to be able to understand how humans communicate. We're already doing that with our text. We're going to start, these models are starting to understand how to see the world as well and see uh, and to ingest all different types of data like medical data, scientific data. And so that we're going to be collaborating with our computing systems in entirely new ways. And it's going to open up a a new accessibility for leveraging technology to non-technical people. So, for example, right now, there's been a big effort to gather tremendous amounts of data, you know, kind of the big data movement that everybody has been collecting data for all these years. And right now, uh, one of the most common jobs there is, especially here in Silicon Valley, is a data scientist, right? Because you need certain technical skills to be able to write Python code to explore these complicated and elaborate and vast data sets. Well, like this is a great example where you don't need to be a data scientist to use a conversational interface to be able to explore these large data sets. So I think in the kind of, again, longer term vision, we're going to start to see the ability for a much wider range of humans with many different expertises and interests. And there aren't necessarily technology, quote unquote, technology oriented people. Uh, And that's only because you'd have to only speak the way that computers speak in order to work with them. And now they're going to start to speak in human languages. And I think that's going to unlock a lot of incredible potential in the next five to 10 years. The other area that you know I started to suggest a minute ago was that we're going to start to see what we call like a new advent of social, spatial, generative computing. And that's a mouthful, but the vision there is like combining social, which is kind of something that we've been building up from the beginning of the internet to then social media. You know, now everybody you know, collaborates through online tools. Spatial, and that's where we add in the ability to have immersive interfaces um, and interfaces that utilize not just our our eyes and our mind and a little bit of our hands, but our embodied interfaces like Apple Vision Pro headsets. And then lastly, generative, like how do we work with these incredible generative AI systems to help us generate content and generate ultimately not just like text, but like We're going to start to generate worlds, and these worlds are going to be models and digital twins of worlds, and we're going to be able to simulate, and this is something we also talk about quite a bit, uh, that we're going to have a new capacity for simulation. 
And now that word already has a lot of connotations where typically we think of a simulation as being like a scientific thing that only scientists do or some sort of technical ability. But this is going to be an ability that anybody has. And in some ways, you know, ChatGPT already allows us to do that. Like we can go into ChatGPT and say like, I am a organization serving this kind of community and here's some things that I think are going to be happening in the next year. And here's some challenges I have. Can you help me imagine a scenario of how I'm going to need to navigate that and some possible things that it might need to consider? And that capacity to create these simulations, these models of our world and understanding our mo- world, not through just documents, which are kind of relatively low dimensional kind of fixed collections of information to these more complex models of the world, which allow us to really see the relationships um, and dynamics of and complexity of the world in much more useful and kind of systemic ways. That's a lot, but uh, I, I just wanted to kind of share some of the thoughts that we're having. We can dive into any more of those if there's of interest to you. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask about was this talk about certain underdeveloped countries being able to leapfrog progress through AI. I don't know what your thought about that was or or whether and what you see down the road with regard to AI helping to unlock the potential of people mm-hmm. and institutions that are now what we consider to be underdeveloped. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because it came up quite a few times uh, in the summit. It did. Given the shared kind of social good and, and a, a mission of, of the organizations at the conference and specifically the increasing awareness around the importance of making sure that as the, the world moves forward with new technological capabilities that these are Shared access is given to across different regions and different variety of organizations and individuals, and that basically we don't leave vast sections of humanity behind. And so there's some interesting conversations there. I would say my perspective is that I've heard a lot of folks say we have to make sure that as we develop AI technology that we don't leave behind the developing world or nonprofit organizations that may not typically have the IT budgets of big private companies. And it's that's an interesting statement that I think, because to me, in many ways, generative AI is one of the most powerful and most accessible technologies that humanity has ever created. Now, of course, in order to utilize generative AI, you need some basic foundation things that not everybody in the world has. You need electricity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, actually, before we even get there, you need to be safe <laughs> from right. you know uh, just like natural disasters or political and military disputes and those kind of things. You need your physical safety too, kind of the, the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You need that basic safety. Right. But then beyond that, you need uh, things like electricity and internet access to kind of participate. Now, there's certainly a large population, I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, Art, but I think the the figure we heard quoted by Microsoft was that there's still 700 people in the world without electricity. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was somewhere in the neighborhood. Well, the number I heard was 2 billion people that don't have access to Internet. That was one number. Yeah. But the electricity number, I'm I'm blanking on. I do remember it was a big number, too. Yeah. So that's a basic thing we need to work on. Folks need that. But as we've seen, and I heard this often when you hear technology companies say, okay, they were offering this to the whole world. You don't know whether or not to believe them. But one of the interesting opportunities at this conference was actually to go and just talk to organizations working in the developing world and ask them. Like I actually sat down with somebody that's working on projects in Central America and in Africa, and their nonprofit is working on animal welfare, specifically donkeys and horses in the developing world to kind of establish better care for them where they're often used uh, as part of basically physical labor, things like horses 
donkeys working in like brick kilns where <laughs> the temperatures are super high or even just those basic care of these animals. But I was, so I was fascinated to talk to this gentleman, but I was also, I asked him about this. I said, you know, folks often say like people in the developing world may not get access to this. Like what does your organization assume? And he right away, he said, you know, we assume that uh, not everybody, obviously, but many, many, many people in the developing world have not only access to cell phones, but access to pretty decent internet. Mm. I want to be careful here. I'm not, uh, this is all anecdotal. I think we need to, probably should be looking this up uh, to fact check to make sure. But it was just interesting to hear from organizations that are, you know, depending, building strategies and initiatives. And right away, without hesitation, he said, you know, even in like in India, where they actually do a lot of work, this one organization, he said, you know, a lot of people have two cell phones. <laughs> I was like, I only have one cell phone here in, in Silicon Valley. So, you know, that's not to be dismissive to say we don't also need to make sure that we continue to emphasize inclusion and bringing access to more people. But I would say, unlike something like a virtual reality headset, where it's like a physical object, or something like quantum computing, where there's only like five of them in the entire world, generative AI, you basically just, you don't even need a really fat internet connection to operate chat GPT. It's mostly just sending text. Obviously, it's going to be more important as we integrate more multimodal capabilities like video and audio and images to have a more consistent, reliable, and, and faster internet connection. But at the core capacity, just even having access to these large language models is pretty amazing. And the other thing I'll add in terms of accessibility is that there's folks that you need to pay for things like ChatGPT. There's free versions, obviously, right now. We'll see how long that lasts. There's also very powerful and by many metrics, nearly as robust and effective open source generative AI models that are becoming available, which means that organizations don't necessarily have to uh, adopt paid models like GPT-4 or Gemini or Claude. And in fact, I've heard from a lot of developers that for-profit companies in the developed world will often develop using ChatGPT or GPT-4 because it's really easy to develop on. But then once they figure out how to kind of build and run their application and what the prompts that they need are, mm. they'll move over to an open source model because it's just not only less expensive, but often some of these models don't even need to run in the cloud. There's increasingly smaller large language models, language models that are small enough to run locally on a cell phone. Mm. So I think just to circle it back to your original question, I think we always need to be continuously thinking about how do we ensure that we're including and providing access to as many people as possible but I would say that there's many aspects to generative AI that actually make it inherently more accessible and more democratized than many other technologies that have come before it. Yeah, we'll have to see what that means, what that translates into in 10 years. Yes. And now it's time for our Giving Tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability, and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. Today, I'd like to talk to you about the issue of deducting your donations. One thing to keep in mind is the value of volunteer time that you're giving to a charity is really something that you can't take a deduction for. However, out-of-pocket expenses, such as if you had to travel your gas expense to and fro to volunteering, and you keep records of that, that is deductible. So keep that in mind if you volunteer. The other thing to keep in mind is if you're receiving something of value in conjunction with your gift to the charity. So let's say you're contributing to an organization and they promise to send you some musical packet or download of something that will entertain you or some other encouragement of entertainment benefit. The amount of your contribution that is above the fair market value of what you receive would be the deductible amount. And what is that fair market value? Really, the organization should tell you that so you can take a proper deduction come tax time. But that is what the item would normally sell in the retail marketplace. The thing to also keep in mind is that if you attend charitable events like a play or some premiere or some other activity like that for charity, 
once again, if you're purchasing an item, the portion of the ticket price above the fair market value of what it would normally sell for would be deductible. And in some cases, unfortunately, it may be selling for pretty much what its market value is. So it's really not a deduction. So be careful when you get something of value in conjunction with your contribution that it's not fully deductible. And the other thing, of course, is you want to verify the charitable tax exempt status of the organization to see if contributions are deductible. And organizations that are tax exempt under Section 501c3 of the Internal Revenue Code are the section that defines charities. If you have questions about that, go to irs.gov and look up publication 526, which is about deducting contributions, and you can get additional details about how you can take proper deductions come tax time. One of the questions, Toshi, that I left the session with was, there was a lot of talk about, and I'm going to use this phrase, conquering the world with technology. (laughs) You know, there was a lot of that. There was it's going to do so much better for people. It's going to be great. And yes, there are challenges, all of that. But what about people who just don't want to deal with it? I mean, I'm just talking about not maybe here in America necessarily, but what about people in places that don't want that and who feel that their lives can be just as fulfilling and meaningful and purposeful, just the way things are now. And I think back to, I went to school in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And Lancaster, Pennsylvania is famous for having communities of Amish people who do not use electricity. And they do all of their carpentry, all of their farming and everything with tools that don't involve electricity. And they live, in their minds, very meaningful lives. So the question, I guess, is, are we making space in this new world, or new worlds, as you might put it, for people who are just cool with the way things are, and they don't want all that? I don't know what your thoughts were about that. And if you're tracking anything like that in a way of communities who are basically saying, "Eh, it's good, we're, we're fine. And I guess one other question is, can the world abide people like that as it expands its technological footprint? It's a really good question. I think you gave some interesting examples like the Amish, right? That's clearly an example of a whole community that continues to not only survive, but as I understand, thrive pretty well without the use of modern technology. So I do think, you know, technology is always a choice. uh, And that's one of the important things to always remind ourselves because the technology industry is always trying to tell us technology is inevitable. (laughs) And they're always trying to make sure that we feel like if we don't use technology, we're going to be missing out kind of the FOMO sell. And I think the reality is, is everything should be a choice, I think. But at the same time, and I think there's people that for many years, many years ago said, like, I don't want to use the internet or I don't want to use a smartphone. And I think that's a great choice. And even today we're seeing like there's actually some really interesting signals of younger generations deciding to use flip phones, yeah, because they realize the, the attention sink and the kind of the technology addiction that having a smartphone with a flashy screen and social media on it has. So they're going back to just flip phones where all you can do is either make a phone call to talk to somebody or you can do texting, but it's not easy. You got to do it with the number pad. <laughs> so adding some intentional friction into our lives. And I actually think often friction can hold us back. Friction can be uh, healthful sometimes in our lives. So I think there's plenty of examples like that. I think uh, we also have seen a lot of examples where folks feel like they don't want to rush into technology. I'm thinking of like older generation people in my life that were like, I'll never use the internet or I'll never use a smartphone. And sometimes it just takes time and probably wiser for them to wait till it's more mature, right? Mm. We're still in the very early adoption phase for a lot of these technologies. And and that happens to be my area of research. Doesn't mean I think endorse that for everybody. It's just, I'm focusing on that myself. So 
And in fact, I don't actually think everybody should be rushing into utilizing and certainly not adopting at scale generative AI before we really understand how it works and what we can trust it to do and what we can't. And I would even say the world is rushing too quickly into adopting generative AI before we understand. So, you know, it's interesting. A lot of the folks, when they report on these younger generations that are using older technologies like flip phones or just regular digital cameras, so it's not not like built into your smartphone with all the things that are going to distract you, but just like a regular camera, you know, one single-use object, they, they often talk about them as like Luddites. I think it's good to remember that right now, I think the, the Luddites have been kind of misrepresented and the, the history of the Luddites has actually been misrepresented. People equate that as being anti-technology. In fact, actually, the Luddites, uh, you know, they, they did call themselves Luddites at the time. But for them, though, they were actually the artisans and the skilled workers in fabric, in the garments industry, in, in the weaving industry. And they were facing automation at the time, a very similar kind of fate. And it is true that many of them did end up going in and sabotaging technology at the companies to slow down adoption. But what is not really recognized is that they were not anti-technology. They didn't say, we don't want to use technology. In fact, they knew how powerful technology was. They were saying, their argument was, we need to kind of navigate the social contract and how that's shifting and the impacts on society on recognizing that. And I think we're going through a similar period right now, like where you don't have to necessarily be for AI or against AI. I'm more of the camp of saying, like, we need to be more curious about AI. We shouldn't be afraid of it or just embracing it. We need to be a lot more curious about it right now. And we need to, as the Luddites were asking us, and as many kind of scholars today are saying, is like, it's very overly simplistic to think of AI as is either like a problem or a, a massive productivity boost. Productivity isn't always necessarily what we need, right? And the increase in productivity doesn't always result in the shared value being shared amongst all people in society. So I really think we need to be asking more complex questions than like, is AI going to kill humanity or save humanity? Let me ask you this, because there was a lot of discussion about whether we should be thinking about regulating this technology in any way and what the role of government in control, controlling this technology or these technologies should be. Do you think that as we look forward, there will likely be some form of regulation of the technology? And will it help us? I guess is the question. Will the regulation be a good thing? Well, I think with any new powerful tool, it's important to try to find the balance between ensuring that we can explore it and reap the benefits from it. But we also do need to be doing what we can to prevent bad things from happening as well. AI, generative AI, is particularly difficult to regulate because, as we've discussed, it behaves differently in every situation. People creating the technology don't fully know how it works. They don't know what it's going to do in every situation. So it's very challenging to create rules around something that you don't even know what it can do and when it's going to do it, what rules you need to make to enforce, or how do you even enforce those rules with those systems. So it is very complicated. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it or that we can't do it. In fact, we need to figure it out, right? And humanity from the very beginning has navigated very complicated new technologies from the very beginning with fire, right? Where we have, we've had to figure out what it can do and how it can serve us and how it can harm us and how do we create all sorts of different systems, everything from just like people generate common sense, like don't put your hand in the fire, yeah. to saying things like, having a rule that says you can't have flammable materials when you're building a school or a building, all the way up to more conceptual kind of understandings of threats like you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. And it's going to take us time to explore that. And 
I think one of the reasons that OpenAI, the company that's created ChatGPT and GPT-4, and there's kind of considered the leader in generative AI right now, they were originally started with a humanitarian mission. The founders were very worried about the dangers. At the time, it was Elon Musk and some others. They were very worried about the dangers that they saw the potential of generative AI or just AI in general. Um, this was even pre-large language models and ChatGPT and things like that. But they saw the potential of danger with AI and said, we need to figure out how to make it safe. But the only way to make it figure out how to make it safe is we actually have to build it mm-hmm. to see what it can do. And so it's this interesting conundrum where it's like we have to make the thing. And in some ways, we even have to deploy it into the world. We have to play with the fire in order to know how it can burn us and then to even figure out how to make things fire safe and how to make society safe from the dangers of fire. So we we hear about it and kind of described as alignment research and capabilities research. So companies are building the capabilities of AI and then they're trying to figure out how do we keep these tools and these new capabilities in alignment with what our human goals are. And I think then we start getting into the issue of like, well, humanity hasn't necessarily agreed and aligned on what is safe or not and what is good or not for the world. And I would say that sounds like I'm saying, see, we can never figure this out. I would also say humanity is aligned on quite a bit. <laughs> and I think we need to be leaning into those kind of capabilities and that history of humans figuring out and, and slogging through the messy process of understanding new technologies, maybe even having some not so great experiences with it. For example, atomic bombs, right? It's arguable whether or not the United States should should have dropped those, but it did have a large impact on the world in terms of how what kind of guardrails the world wanted to put up. I hope that it doesn't take an attack or a disaster like that with artificial intelligence, but unfortunately, it may take some of our hands getting burnt and some to witnessing some destruction in order to understand what safety means. Yeah, I mean, I want to finish on a positive note, but it's hard when you when you mention a technology that people don't quite understand and wanting to make sure that we use it in a way that makes us safe. But yet when you make the analogy to a fire, you know, when you stick your hand in the fire, you feel a pain right away. You know, the thing about these technologies is that you could be burning yourself up for a long time before you even feel any pain. And by the time you realize it, there's no more you, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. The feedback loops are, yeah. It's pretty daunting to think, but my point is simply that the harm can be done in a way that we don't even see it happening. And by the time we do that harm, you know, it could be too late to reverse it. So I think that's the fear that a lot of people have. I don't necessarily have that fear, but it does feel very different with a technology that you don't have a thorough understanding of from the standpoint of what it will do. So anyway, that's just my thought. Well, that's true, but let me let me add a, a twist to that art. I think that's actually a really interesting analogy that you make, the idea that we can't sense when things are going wrong. I think it could be argued that actually humanity has the ability to sense in ways at a scale that we've never been able to sense before. And, and AI is a way for us to make sense of a lot of that complex data in ways we've never been able to do. And I think humanity has like, our relationship with technology is about kind of extending our reach, but without extending our vision. <laughs> so you'd imagine like a nearsighted person who's like really strong, like and able to do things, but can't see exactly what they're doing. And I think we've had a lot of examples of that with climate change and the over-reliance and dependency on fossil fuels and burning that for decades. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you could also say, well, we've also developed the technology to even better understand like how this is working and develop new ways to imagine new systems for mobility and energy and home heating and uh, you know air conditioning, which are the leading causes of climate footprint, of carbon footprint in the world. Let's not forget, we actually have extended our gaze as well, our ability to not only see better patterns in the complex forms of data that would have been impossible before, but we're able to now even now with generative AI 
to generate new possibilities of how we might realign those systems. So I think we actually have a lot of new capabilities that are going to help us navigate this time and a lot of the complex problems aside from AI, like climate change, that we need to navigate that, that require tools to make sense of really complex, complicated, dynamic systems. Well, you mentioned climate change, and we know that there is a thirsty need for electricity for these systems to work. And some people say that we we may not have enough electricity now to build them fully out. So we have to come up with new systems to produce energy in order for these systems to be fully actualized. And some people are even saying there may be some room for some old technologies like nuclear power plants, which I understand are safer now in their construction than they were in bef- years ago, although mm-hmm. we haven't been building many of them. I don't think we built any of them in a long time. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the thing here is I do think that a lot of the AI hopes will be dependent on addressing many collateral and large-scale issues at the same time, if this is to work. I know that at the summit, Microsoft indicated that they're spending $50 billion a year on this. And if they're spending 50, I imagine some of the other companies are spending substantial sums as well. And the U.S. government and other governments are going to be spending money. There's going to be a tremendous amount of investment going into this. My hope is that they will also be addressing some collateral challenges, and I think they will need to do that in order for us to really meet the objectives of what this technology can do. I want to share thoughts on that. Well, it just makes me think, first, I just want to say a disclaimer. I don't believe in techno-solutionism, meaning like just believing, oh, we just need to make more technology and then we'll solve it, right? Yeah. That said, I would also point you, you bring up the, the issue of kind of energy. There was recently DeepMind, uh, which is a, the main AI department at Google, just released the output of a, a new model that they've been running that explores new possible materials that we haven't explored yet, materials science. And they generated something like, I want to say, several million new possible crystalline structures of molecules. And then they were able to use basically another AI process to simulate, to try to understand which ones might be stable enough that they could actually be usable. And now they're actually using AI-powered robotics labs to manufacture several hundred of these compounds. And the kind of clickbait headline that that we saw, but it kind of helps put it in perspective, is that the amount of materials that were discovered as potentially viable new compounds that could be used in things like new forms of energy storage, generation, and transmission, those discoveries, the amount of new compounds that they discovered was the equivalent of 800 years of scientific discoveries that humans have done previously. And they did it in a matter of months or maybe even weeks, I think. And so while we shouldn't just put all our cards and say, okay, technology is going to solve this, I do believe that it's going to help us explore our world and understand new types of solutions, especially really complicated ones, and test them before so we know what we should spend our money and energy on to actually go and try to develop as solutions for things like medical needs, new treatments, new types of drugs. There's already lots of examples for that, as well as new forms of materials for energy creation and transmission. So I think, again, I'll go back to our little heuristic. It's not a great uh, reliable answer finder, but it's an unprecedented possibilities explorer. And I think those are, you know, medical drug research as well as materials research are excellent examples of that being applied that I think is going to have profound implications for solving many of the world's major challenges. All right, last question. Bob tells us to ask, how do you want to be enhanced? Hmm. How do you want to be enhanced, Toshi? That's a really good question. It's not an easy question to answer. Well, yeah, part of why it's not easy because there's a lot of ways I'd listen. <laughs> you know, I mean, as I'm aging, all of my aches and pains and all the ways that life has 
more difficult as you get older to be assisted. But in terms of just like how I want to be enhanced or how I want to be assisted, I think right now, and there's a lot of folks speculating that, that generative AI might be able to help us. It's just right now I feel most overwhelmed day to day with just like the sheer amount of information that I need to not only take in, but to kind of synthesize and make decisions on. And I would love a way to kind of summarize things. And this is one of the things that generative AI is really good at. Uh, right now, we're just kind of almost like manual. So you have to like copy and paste, like Here, here's a whole article, paste it in ChatGPT, summarize this for me. But as that gets built into more tools, I'm excited to kind of streamline my information intake, kind of sense making around it. And then the other uh, way that I'm actually excited to be enhanced is I am not a computer programmer and I'm not a 3D artist, but I'm very excited and interested in the idea of building uh, virtual worlds to explore and inhabit as both for artistic means, but also as places to kind of explore ideas collectively together and create new types of spaces for people to, to connect and collaborate. And so far, the, the, even though I research a lot into the, that kind of world, I've been held back by the fact that I'm not a programmer and I'm not a 3D artist. And generative AI is, a, is quickly going to eliminate that barrier for people like me. Well, thank you, Toshi. Listen to everyone. You've been listening to Toshi Anders Hu. Toshi is the director of the Emerging Media Lab at the Institute for the Future. And as you can see, there's a lot going on with Toshi and obviously the lab. And he's given us a lot to unpack here in this solid hour, I think, Toshi, of, of this podcast. It just kind of flew by. Yeah, whenever we hang out with you, Art, we go far quickly. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it again sometime, too. Well, but for all of our listeners, I want to just thank you for hanging in there with us. I'm sure, though, that once you got into this, it was hard to pull away. But uh, we do this every Tuesday. There's a guest or either me occasionally just here talking about some topic. And we hope that you will subscribe to the show so that you can become a regular listener. And obviously, if you want to support the podcast, that would be wonderful too. You can go to give.org where you can make a donation and also see some of the other great work that's going on at the BBB Wise Giving Alliance to help people make impactful gifts of their time and money. Thank you for listening and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.